Welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. So um, Hillary, I think, charts this course between those two, I think, better than anyone else. I think he is one of the preeminent early church historians on the Trinity. Let me read to you from him. Believers have always found their satisfaction in that divine utterance, which our ears heard recited from the gospel at the moment when that power, which is its attestation, was bestowed upon us. Go now and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. What element in the mystery of man's salvation is not included in those words? What is forgotten? What left in darkness? All is full. As from the divine fullness, perfect. As from the divine perfection. The passage contains the exact words to be used, the essential acts, the sequence of processes, and insight into the divine nature. He bade them baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. That is, with the confession of the Creator, and of the only begotten, and of the gift. Keep that in mind. For God the Father is one, from whom are all things, and our Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten, through whom are all things, is one the Spirit God's gift to us, who pervades all things, is also one. Thus all, all are ranged according to powers possessed and benefits conferred. The one power from whom all, the one offspring through whom all, the one guilt, gift who gives us perfect hope. Nothing can be found lacking in that supreme union which embraces the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Infinity and the eternal, his likeness, his express image, our enjoyment of him. Beautiful beautiful statement in which Hillary tethers all of his insights to the basic views that we see in scripture, the processions of 
know, Son, and Holy Spirit from the Father, their eternal relations, yet he is not also unafraid to state what are the natural implications of that in a really balanced way. We move now to the Cappadocian Fathers, namely Gregory Nanzienzen, his, um, who, with, who we'll start with, and then also numbered along with him are his very close friend, uh, Basil of Caesarea, and his younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. Gregory Nazianzen's father was a bishop, and in fact, he worked until uh, he was almost 100 years old. Astonishing. Gregory, as well as the other Cappadocians, were really drawn to, to the ascetic life. You know, just wanting to seek the Lord and contemplate God, and all of them, to more or less of a degree, were pulled into the work of shepherding, sort of against their will to some degree. They, they knew that God was calling them to do it, but they, if it were up to them, they would have just been with God, fasting, meditating, putting aside, all of them, putting aside almost everything to do with this life, wearing extremely simple clothes, having nothing to themselves, but they carried this into their lives and into their service. Uh, for God in the different places in which they uh, they ministered. So Gregory Nazianzen, as you know, of Nazianzus, that's where he he was for a while. Uh, worked underneath his father, and then uh, eventually became the bishop, but not for not for quite some time. Uh, in fact, he had at one point withdrawn uh, in his contemplation. And it was, it was actually the death of his friend Basil that really brought him up out of that. And uh, it really was a instrumental moment in his life. He was known for his piety. He was known for his, his thinking. But it was, it was really when his friend died that he took up the controversies that were prevalent at that time, especially in the East and, um, and laboring for for, for the Nicene understanding of Trinity. I think that Gregory Nazianzen is among the more gifted thinkers on the Trinity in how he is willing to be a little bit speculative. Let me read to you from, from him. I, I, I acknowledge that I'm, I'm moving quite quickly along with these, but I really want to give you a chance to at least hear a lot of these church fathers, even if we're not. You know, just touching on their biographies very, very briefly. He states, the three most ancient opinions concerning God are anarchia, polyarchia, and monarchia. The first two are the sport of the children of Hellas. And may they continue to be so. For anarchy is a thing without order. And the rule of many is factious and thus anarchical and thus disorderly. For both these things tend to the same thing, namely disorder, and this to dissolution, for disorder is the first step to dissolution. But monarchy is that which we hold in honor. It is, however, a monarchy that is not limited to one person, for it is possible for unity, if at variance with itself, to come into a condition of plurality, but one which is made of an equality of nature and a union of mind and an identity of motion and a convergence of its elements to unity a thing which is impossible to the created nature, so that though numerically distinct, there is no severance of essence. Therefore, unity 
having from all eternity arrived by motion at duality, found its rest in Trinity. That's one of my favorite statements in all of the early church fathers. Therefore, unity, having from all eternity arrived by motion at duality, found its rest in Trinity. This is what we mean by Father and Son and Holy Ghost. The Father is the begetter and the emitter, without passion, of course, and without reference to time, and not in a corporeal manner. The Son is the begotten, and the Holy Ghost the emission. For I know not how this could be expressed in terms altogether excluding visible things. And there we see early church father there recognize what ought to be plain to each one of us, but sometimes is forgotten, which is that we can't but use limited language, human analogical language in speaking about Trinity. We have, we have to do that. How else can we talk about Trinity? And yet we have to be careful in doing that. Basil, well, of course, was a good friend of, uh, very good friend. They grew up together uh, with Gregory Nazianzen, and they both remained steadfast together. They, they both studied together in Athens. Gregory, speaking of both of them, says, we knew, speaking of, of their, sorry, of their studies in Athens, we knew only two streets of the city, right? A great city, right? One of the greatest cities in the world. We knew only two streets there. The first and the more excellent one to the churches and to the ministers of the altar. The other, which, however, we did not so highly esteem, to the public schools and to the teachers of the sciences. The streets, the theaters, games, and places of unholy amusements we left to others. Our holiness was our great concern. Our sole aim was to be called and to be Christians. In this, we placed our whole glory. Imagine having that as your goal from the outset, even as students. That was, that was Basil and Gregory. Well, like Gregory, Basil was made presbyter against his will in Caesarea. This, this happens over and over again. And Basil was a man of, of great action, uh, but also of great thinking. And he wrote much on the Trinity. Uh, Gregory is known, and, and I, I have some of, his, we have some of his, uh, his writings there at the back that we encourage you to read. That's one of the things that I've chosen from the early church to, to present to you. Of course, we can read much more. Basil actually, though, wrote much more on the Trinity than, than Gregory did, who sort of came to, to writing later in life. Basil combated Arianism, especially in the person of Eunomius, as, as did his brother Gregory of Nyssa. But uh, let me read to you from his, uh, his work against Eunomius. He says, the God of the universe is father from infinity. He did not at some point begin to be father. For a deficiency in power did not prevent him from fulfilling his will, nor did he wait for the passage of a certain number of ages to arrive at what he wanted, as is the case for human beings and other living creatures who each attain the power to beget after reaching maturity. Only the insane would think and utter such things. On the contrary, he has a fatherhood, if I may give it such a name, that is coextensive with his own eternity. Therefore, it is also the case that the Son, who exists before the age and always, did not at some point begin to exist. For from whatever point the Father exists, the Son also exists, and the notion of the Son immediately enters along with the notion of Father. For it is clear that the Father is Father of a Son. So then, 
Though the father has no origin, the son's origin is the father. There is no intermediary between them. Now, the third with them was, is Gregory of Nyssa. And, and I'm not going to recount much of his biography at all. We are running out of time with this lecture, but I do want to just briefly read um, a statement from him against, uh, which is part of his writing against Eunomius. He says this, the Christian faith, which in accordance with the command of our Lord has been preached to all nations by his disciples is neither of men nor by men, but by our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who being the word, the life, the light, the truth, and God and wisdom and all else that he is by nature for this cause above all was made in the likeness of man and shared our nature, becoming like us in all things yet without sin. He was like us in all things in that he took upon him manhood in its entirety with soul and body so that our salvation was accomplished by means of both. Now that is more to do it's against Eunomius, who was an Arian, but here we see him touching on the, uh, the doctrine of the person of Christ, which requires and became codified at Chalcedon, requires that the Lord Jesus Christ is not only fully God, fully man with both full humanity in body and in soul. So now we come finally, and we'll finish this lecture with considering Augustine. Augustine is rightfully remembered as the leading theologian of the early church. His output was phenomenal. There are maybe, uh, may, there are maybe some others that reach his output, maybe Cyril of Alexandria. He was a tremendous thinker. He too was from North Africa. Uh, some of you will know his history that he had a devout mother, but he left the faith, lived a very impious life. Uh, and it was only, he was only led back to Christ through a very meandering path, which included Cicero, actually. So there you've got some, uh, some understanding that, that people like Cicero and Plato, there's, there's some significant overlap in their understandings of God and the universe between them and Christianity. So Cicero was actually part of his road back, but also Manichaeism, which he followed for a while, certainly a, a heresy. Uh, and then Ambrose, who he often would listen to, even though he was not yet believing, but he, he loved to listen to the great Ambrose, uh, who was a, a gifted orator in the church. And then, of course, as he tells in his confessions, it was a reading of Romans 13, 14, that talked about putting, putting sin to death that, that helped lead him to, to Christ. As well as a, a children's nursery rhyme that he heard. Somebody say, you know, take up the book and read. He too was compelled to become a bishop, and, uh, but he was a very gifted, gifted man. In his work on the Trinity, as well as many other books in which he touches on the Trinity, uh, you know, to really get an overview of Augustine's view of the Trinity's you know, you need to read his commentaries on John. You need to read his work on the Trinity. And then there's, there's some other significant works where he also touches on this. He, it really is a, a systematic work. He, he does a couple of things that are followed by, you know, really the rest of church history. One is that he develops some analogies that gets followed, you know, throughout medieval theology, and, and we, which we still use today. And he developed many of these analogies, actually. One was the memory, intelligence, and will. So the memory being, the, being not what you're thinking, but what is, what is there already. 
And, and that was a figure of the father for him in this psychical analogy. Whereas the intelligence is that which you bring to your mind to be thinking about right now. And, uh, and the will is, is the acting upon of that, uh, of that intelligence or that wisdom, that what you're speaking of. He also speaks of the Holy Spirit as the bond of love or fellowship between the Father and the Son. We'll, in our next lecture, we'll build on that considerably. Uh, he also is very strong on the one essence of the Father. And it has been said, and I think rightly so, that one of the things that distinguishes a lot of the Western thinkers like Augustine, Ambrose, to a lesser degree, Hillary, from the Eastern thinkers, uh, the Greek thinkers like the Cappadocian fathers and those that would follow them, is that the Western thinkers tend to start from the basis of and therefore emphasis the oneness of, of the Trinity, namely the one essence. Whereas those from the East and the Greeks, they tend to start from the three persons. And so that tends to get emphasized. Uh, and so even though Augustine is this great gift to the church in so many ways, not you know, the least of which is the doctrine of the Trinity, but by no means the, the only or even maybe the major way in which he has influenced uh, the rest of church history. But there's probably, you know, having said that, there's probably a weakness that we have drawn, at least in the Western tradition on the Trinity, in that we tend to emphasize the, the oneness of God maybe a little bit too much. And that certainly derives it, itself from Augustine and through to, uh, to Aquinas and some others. And I think that someone like Hillary probably charts this course uh, a, a, little, a little better. Let me read to you from Augustine. I've got a couple of selections here. And this is said more plainly, if anyone is fit to receive it, in that place where he says, for as the father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the, to the son to have life in himself. For he did not give to him already existing and not having life, that he should have life in himself, inasmuch as in that he is, he is life. Therefore, he gave to the son to have life in himself means that he begat the son to be unchangeable life, which is life eternal, right? So he's, he's pointing out that when the father gives the son that life might be in him, that that happened eternally in the begottenness of the son. Since therefore the word of God is the son of God and the son of God is the true God in eternal life, as John says in his epistle. So here, what else are we to acknowledge when the Lord says, the word which I have spoken, the same shall judge him at the last day and calls that very word, the word of the father and the commandment of the father and that very commandment, eternal life. And I know he says that his commandment is life everlasting. So he's stating that he who is the word or the command or the wisdom of the father is this commandment that is life everlasting. So when you obey Jesus, you're obeying the word who is the very word of God, who is the life of God given to the son through the divine and eternal birth, namely the eternal generation of the son. Let me quote one last statement and we'll end with this. Therefore, that unspeakable conjunction of the father and his image is not without fruition, without love, without joy. Therefore, that love, delight, 
felicity or blessedness, if indeed it can be worthily expressed by any human word, is called by him, in short, use, and is the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. Not begotten, but the sweetness of the begetter and of the begotten, filling all creatures according to their capacity with abundant bountifulness and copiousness, that they may keep their proper order and rest satisfied in their proper place. And we will build on those ideas in our next lecture in medieval theology. Why don't you let me pray? Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your son and for your spirit. We thank you that the son is life, life everlasting, your word, eternally begotten, not created. We thank you for the Holy Spirit with your blessing and certainly to us in bringing us to you. Father, we thank you for these fathers, for their piety, for their courage, for their suffering, and for their insight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lecture Series on the Trinity. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. That's spelled P-R-O-E-L-I-U-M. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Have a great day.